You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. Today's guest on the podcast is Dr. Saskia Sasson. She is the Robert S. Lind Professor of Sociology at Columbia University and member of its Committee on Global Thought, which she co-chaired until 2015. She is the author of eight books, including Cities in a World Economy and The Global City. She is also the editor or co-editor of three books, with her most recent being Cities at War, Global Insecurity, and Urban Resistance. Dr. Sasson, thank you for coming on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. So, Dr. Sasson, if you don't mind, I want to jump right in. And we have a wide variety of, let's say, audiences from military to non-military. But I know this might sound like a very simple question, but I think I get a lot. And you're the expert in many fields, economics in urban areas, to ethics, to urbanization. Um, Why do you think cities are important? Well, cities are a space where those without power, for me, this is very important, get to make a history. They leave a trace. If you look at cities, old cities that have existed, you know, they have survived empires, they have dictators, (laughs) there are the cities and all cities have, you know, a very broad spectrum of people from poor, very poor, very often, to very rich, very often. So that tells us something about the unique qualities that a city brings. If you go to a plantation, if you go to, uh, you know, to just a big institution, you don't have that mix that the city offers. Yeah, I think I saw in one of your interviews, you said, and I think we, as especially the military, struggle with how to define an urban area. And you said, lots of buildings together, a density, an office park is not a city. Could you explain that? Like, how do you kind of draw the line of what is a city and what is not? Right. I'm very glad you picked up on that. In other words, it's not just if you just have a, a huge building with a vast number of people, that is not necessarily a city. A city is a space, like the most extreme version, as I just said before, for me, is that those without power get to make a history, get to make a little economy, get to innovate, etc., etc. That's the extreme case. At the other end is a whole bunch of very rich people who could go anywhere in the fields, you know, in open mountain areas, etc. But no, there they are in cities. Why? Because that is where they can make the connections, not just with the immediate people who are in that city, but also with people who are traveling into that city, but are coming from other parts of the world. There are very few spaces where that type of mixity happens. So if you're a business person, all you're thinking about is your business. But I look at it as this whole mix of types of people, types of stores, types of, you know, everything. And that is special, you know, that can humanize a situation also. So the poor don't necessarily have to feel as they would on a plantation where they're super exploited, for instance. You know, the poor in the city can also make a local economy. And many poor neighborhoods have little economies. They may not be great, but they are there. I know you wrote a book about the topic of global cities and coined the term, but what is a global city and and how is it different than, let's say, just an international city? Well, an international city nowadays is probably also functioning as a global city. 
for me, the, the global city is an emerge, a condition that sort of emerges really in the 1980s, you know, 1990s, 1980s, which is when we had, if you just take the United States, yeah, the, many countries had the same set of transformations, but let's just focus on the United States. So the United States deregulates its economies and internationalizes its economy in after the 1980s. That really takes off. Now, part of it was there are more and more American firms at that point in the 1980s that begin to set up operations in other parts of the world as well. We have long had that, but it sort of takes off in a more significant way and also with simpler sort of operations. It's not a, you know, setting up, say, an army situation in Germany, right, as the United States did. That is one kind of thing. But I'm talking about, you know, people, all, all kinds of small businesses and big operations, sort of a mix. And that distributes itself across many major cities. So certainly New York, certainly Los Angeles, certainly et cetera, et cetera, but also often in smaller cities. It's not just the big cities. Now, the point for me of the global city is that one major trend that begins to happen after the 1980s is that we deregulate, and just focusing on the United States, but it happens also in other countries of Europe, et cetera, et cetera. But what happens in the 1980s, we begin to deregulate our economies, which means you are opening up your economy to actors who can be coming from any part of the world and want to set up a business in New York or in LA or wherever it might be. That is a big transformation. Secondly, it also means that American businesses set up business all over the world. I mean, the Americans at one point are really moving, developing businesses in many, many parts of the world. So the 1980s marks a time when a new type of economy emerges, which is a fairly internationalized economy. And in that context, that what one of the core spaces where this can happen are major global cities. So a country like the United States has quite a few global cities, probably, at, you know, even at the, in that earlier period, you had six or seven, you know, the major cities that the country has. That means not all cities. Most cities are small and medium-sized. And in other, in, in smaller countries, they also go global, but it might just be on one type of business zone that they go global. And But, but the United States, big country, et cetera, et cetera, actually goes global on a whole set of economic vectors. So it's not just one thing as it used to be, it's many. And that sort of one way of thinking about it is that it globalizes, especially the major cities, not the smaller cities, the smaller towns, that those just keep on living their traditional lives, even though you can have international actors also there. But it's really the big city. It's something that happens in the big cities in a very significant way. So is there a good and potentially a bad to the rise of global cities? Yes, very, I'm very glad you picked up on that. Yeah, that is right. So this is very, on the one hand, very exciting. It internationalizes, you know, the major cities of the United States and, and in other countries, as I said, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, it also signals, and now we know that for a fact, but we're talking back, you know, 20 years when this is happening, when this begins to happen, more than 20 years, actually. But so what it also does, it enables some actors to become extraordinarily powerful. 
you know, and so when you think of some of the major firms, it's not necessarily the manufacturers in, say, in Detroit, manufacturers of cars in Detroit, they benefit too from it. But still, but it is, you know, above all, financiers, leading experts of all kinds of aspects of the law, etc., etc., right? So you have a bunch of highly specialized forms, you know, knowledge bearers. It could be firms, it could be individuals. Mostly it became firms. And they enable your typical firm that has really never gone global or that barely went global, you know, in one little area, whatever, some country. So they enable those firms to actually go global. They really set up all kinds of instrumentalities, as we say in the business, that enable certain kinds of small firms or big firms to go global. Because going global means entering a set of, it's not going to be the whole world, uh, but it's going to be a set of countries and specifically probably economic types of arrangements, depending on what the business is of a firm, that is new to them. It's different a bit from the United States. You know, the Germans do it a bit differently from the French. The French do it a bit differently, etc., etc. You know, each of these countries have their own modes. So these firms are like intermediaries. They enable the American firms to connect up with foreign firms, etc. And it is that intermediate sector always wins. They never lose. Whereas the firms that they try to mate, if you want, you know, to connect with other firms, they often go broke. Many of those operations don't necessarily work. But the intermediary, and this is a very important point in our current economy, the intermediaries never lose. Goldman and Sachs, you have heard of them, right? They are an excellent example of an intermediary. They never lose. They always win. Whereas if you are a manufacturer, you know, of of cars or whatever it might be, or you are some, you know, some other type of activity, you are risking something going global. Goldman Sachs and other such firms, they don't lose. They enable that firm to go global and then they're done. If that then doesn't work out, well, that's too bad. And so there were actually quite a few firms that lost doing that, and then others who succeeded and were very happy. But that is a very important point. And for me, when I look at a city like New York, or New York is really exhibit number one, but you can also see it in San Francisco, you can see it in Los Angeles, you can see it in Chicago, in all the major cities of the United States. The intermediary firms, they really don't lose. So it is really a transformation, but it's a kind of transformation that your average person living in the city would not have noticed, really. They wouldn't have understood the foundational shift of power to a very smart top of the mount or whatever the expression is. The financiers are the exhibit number one here, but they're not the only ones. You have brilliant lawyer firms, etc., etc. also. They are really the big winners starting in the 1980s. That is, to me, a very problematic feature of our economies today. And it still is very alive and very strong. One other concern that you've been very public about, and it really interests me as somebody, or as the military looks at potential political instability around the world, you've raised concerns about global migration of populations whose lands have been bought up by major corporations, what you call land grabs. And how does that lead to instability in major urban environments that potentially would lead to conflict? 
Well, it is not just simply, you know, in urban environments, but what has been happening across the world is, number one, we have like 30 countries that have very active enterprises taking over land, you know, in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America, etc. So accessing land has become extremely important. Accessing land stands for a variety of possibilities. One of them is mining. Another one is extracting water. You know, how all those bottles of water that we drink, where you have the famous Swiss companies and you have Nestle and you have, you know, they're all over the world. They need to extract water. That is what their business is about. And so they have left dry, dead land all over our planet because, you know, they ex- they exhaust the water. So, but this is just one example. And it's a big one, huh? the, the, you know, the water bottles. It's a big issue because everywhere you, they are. But you also have smaller cases where this is also happening. Huh? It's not just the water bottles. The equivalent thing can happen in many different formats. For instance, something that is now taken off. I We did quite a bit of work. There is a great film I really recommend it. And that is how high finance, we're talking again, the richest, most powerful firms in the world. So this is one of them that this film was made about that I really recommend. And so these are firms, these are financial firms that now are going around city after city, buying up low-income housing complexes. In other words, not little houses, but, you know, a big tower with a lot of uh, low-income people living in it. They buy them up. They expel the people who are inhabiting them now. And they tell them, we are going to upgrade your place. So when you come back, it will be much better. Well, yeah, they upgrade the place. But when the people come back, they have also upgraded the price. So they are out of that housing and they bring in a richer class, you know, a middle class, etc. Now, the deception part, that initial move when they say, uh, we are going to upgrade your building. The lie is that if those are renters, if they can't afford the doubling price of that, they're out of there. So it is a violation that dresses it, a violation of trust that dresses itself in this nice notion, we're going to upgrade your house. They don't say, and it's going to cost you twice as much. What's the name of the movie? Uh, The movie is called Push, as in push out. The key person in the film is the rapporteur for housing of the United Nations, who was this amazing person and I worked with them too. I'm also, as I said, in that film. So I got to know it. You know, the work that she was doing was just extraordinary. And she has been all over the world. She went to Africa too, because this is this is something that is happening all over the world. You don't see it with your eyes. You see the the issue is that so we might time one in in a given neighborhood, say in New York or wherever. You know, it could be in in some other country, etc. We say, oh, the decayed big tower for low-income people. Two years later, etc. We we see the same building. It's all fixed up. It's nice now, and that looks like a positive. It renders invisible the fact of the expulsion of the prior renters 
who are now out on the street, basically. We have a lot of homeless people, as you know, in many of our cities. And this is happening also in Europe. This is happening, you know, in many parts of the world. So the way of expelling people from their homes, one way is that way that I just described. So it dresses itself in the clothing of we're going to make your house better. True, <laughs> they make it better. What they don't say is, and it will cost you twice as much. So de facto, they have expelled those people from their modest little homes. And so this is like, you know, yet another sort of thing that is now happening and growing. And, and the person who... Um, Again, I recommend the film because the film has a lot of data that you can get to. Something you, you said kind of keyed me to something that I struggle with as an urban warfare guy is about cities as systems. And I think you've said that cities are complex but incomplete systems. How does that differ than, let's say, some of the you know, in urban studies where people call cities as organisms? How do you look at the city as a system? Well, you know, you can say an organism that to me just doesn't quite work as well as saying that it is a complex open system and incomplete, that incompleteness factor, I think is so important. So that is sort of the way that I would explain, you know, the particularity of cities, that they're complex, but incomplete. And when you think of it, a lot of the tools that we use are a bit complex, they can a bit be complex, but they are not incomplete. You know, incompleteness, I want to keep it as a, as a, in its specificity. There is something to be understood there, something that the eye does not necessarily tell you. Not always it can, but it's not always. And that we should be aware of what are the elements in our daily life, in our businesses, in our, that have that, incompleteness about them and incompleteness is a kind of as we say in the business variable at one end it can actually be interesting productive what these guys are doing they're buying up the big poor uh, big housing for for poor people and then transforming it into that's that's also part of that now that is a negative for low-income people but it's great for the middle classes that are looking for housing, right? So you have all these contradictions always. But anyhow, so you have this, this notion of the incompleteness. And when you think of a city, a city is an incomplete condition because it's an open system. It's a very open, very often. So that, on the one hand, creates possibilities. You can innovate, you can do something, you can start a green garden in your, you know, if you are a collective, a big group of people who live in a in one of these towers for low-income people, and there is a little patch of land, you can you can grow food, make, make it sort of a more social thing, etc., etc., right? Social in the sense that you work together at it. You know, there are all kinds of options that the incompleteness of a condition can make into a positive. It doesn't have to be a negative. It's not like losing a leg. You know, you also then something is incomplete in your body, but it's a it's a burden. It's a negative, though many people, of course, are amazing and they make the most of it. So I, I want to make sure that that's also there. Certainly in the army you have, we all have read that. But still, at the same time, you know, this this notion of the incompleteness of a city, I think is very important and it has a positive and it has a negative form. You know, the, the negatives are in there 
And it's the abuse by powerful actors very often. And sometimes not terribly powerful, like the local the local entrepreneur who who owns a lot of the housing in a in a modest neighborhood. You know, they don't have to be super rich to be extractive, as I like to put it, you know, grab, grab, grab. Again, it gets back to for me to understanding a city around you. And I personally have been deployed to let's say Baghdad, Iraq. And like many, many military officers and military units, especially in a post-conflict situation, trying to help local economies stand back up, we use things like micro-grants and trying to understand the environment around us. A very difficult work. And one thing in your research, or at least in one interview, and I hope you don't mind, I'm just digging out all your the things you've said. You discussed something called tactical urbanism, which really you know sparked my interest. It really made me remember, you know, basically being at the tactical neighborhood level, trying to understand the economies, understand the neighborhoods. What are the some important factors that you would like recommend you should keep an eye at, or, or what is tactical urbanism? Well, uh, well, tactical urbanism is a bit of a has a certain kind of specificity the way I want to use it, but just opening it up just a bit more at least to start an answer to your question. Let, let me start with a slightly more open definition. And that is that the, the incompleteness itself, the openness that a city has, because a city is not a closed system. It can be a huge building that is much bigger than many a city that is privately owned, totally controlled. Yeah, that can, it can be big, private, and controlled. But a city, even if it is small, is not a completely controlled space. It cannot. I mean, it's just not on. You don't call it a city anymore if it is uh, if it is fully controlled. A lot of this for me, and I struggle with this for, I definitely have only been doing this for a few years and not your decades, but has, the, has there been a shift on how we understand cities? I think you've talked about before, like don't use a European urban urbanization model. And I know you've worked with the, the UN on a lot of things. And I saw some research on something called the Athens Charter, but has there been a shift on how, and especially the United Nations, since I used a lot of their work definitions to climate change, big data, has there been a change on how we understand cities? Um, There probably has, you know, I think there was a time just going back, just using the United States, you know, as a, as an example there was a time when people were leaving the city. When I first came to New York, New York City was really quite down, you know, it was degraded, it was dangerous at night. So, but you also, what you also had, because in this case, just focusing on New York City, huh? because New York City was so broke, it meant that it was cheap. You had artists from all over the world. It was one of the most exciting periods for Manhattan when it came to art. And and many of them just came for two or three years. Controls were also much lighter. You know, nobody was really checking very much. They said they came as tourists and that was fine. No, no, you know, it was a different epoch. Eh? But New York City was officially broke. So it was poor, which meant that, that, and richer people had left and the middle classes didn't want to be in the city. That, of course, then changes dramatically when you have that where I started the conversation, that change in the economy, you know, the, that that the city suddenly becomes a very significant actor 
for the most powerful firms, for the rich, etc. Whereas there was a time when, no, it was not that way. You know, this, this, the city always had rich, and certainly the old rich were there. But, but so many of the, of the modest middle classes and the middle classes, they benefited from going to smaller towns, not to be in a city like New York. And then when New York goes officially broke, you know, it was yet another <laughs> hit. But then here it is, it recovered. And, and that is sort of, you know, when you look at long histories, there always is some city there. And these cities go back, I mean, millennia and millennia. And they have existed for a very long time in a way that, say, our modern democracies have not. They appear at a certain moment. We have had different epochs, etc. So, so there is something really interesting about the nature of the animal. A city is an incomplete condition, and it is marked by extraordinary differences in incomes, in ideas, in possibilities, capabilities, you name it, right? That is sort of interesting. Now, final point, because I don't want to romanticize. I think many of our big cities are absolutely in deep trouble just as living spaces because people have to travel for two hours to get to their jobs. They arrive tired. You know, I'm not talking about the rich. I'm talking about modest income workers, etc. So there is something about cities that we need to really address, which is we cannot just let them expand, expand, expand so that you have people who have to travel two hours to their jobs. That's not justice. That's not just, you know, there has to be a social justice factor in play in how we design our cities so that even the poorest families, the poorest workers do not find themselves in a situation where they get up at 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. to get to their job and are just dead tired and in fact don't work well, etc., etc. So I, I think that that is an important point. You know, this notion of the endless city, that that's no good. Yeah, I think I saw something, and I agree, in I think the UN about the, the rise of mega cities and multi, mega, mega cities as they continue to expand. You said uh, we need more cities rather than expand existing cities when they become unmanageable. And for me as a military professional, as major urban environments, population growth, urbanization become more and more unmanageable for, let's say, the the governance, you, you then lead to political instability. Yeah, absolutely. There, it, it, you know, I always say everything is a curve. <laughs> when you think, of, I don't know if that holds for the military situation, but when you think about it, you know, the, the thing that might be beautiful, the best thing ever, you know, if you overdo it, it it sort of fire fires back, so to say, it doesn't, it doesn't work. But uh, you know, the Greeks have this great term, old old Greeks, the old Greeks, sophrosune, which is measure. Measure. I'm sure in the military, this must be something that you talk about, that one has to act with measure. Yeah, we measure everything. No, <laughs> no I don't mean measure as in measuring. I mean as in not, not going totally wild. You know, other things you sort of have to be a bit... Uh, moderation. Moderation, right. Well, Dr. Sass, I think that's a great note to end on. And I, I really felt your comment about the existence of cities beyond forms of governments. Is there something there that this this unique unit of analysis, this unique organism is a part of our human nature and all, there's huge advantages and huge disadvantages to it. And we need to understand, and that's what is so important to me is understanding these environments more and more as they continue 
to change in this incomplete system. Yeah, well put, very well put. And stay in touch. If I can ever uh, be of help or assistance, you you call on me. Oh, absolutely. Oh, well, I really appreciate you being able to do this. And I think it's, it's going to be wonderful. I think our audience will love it. Okay, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out NDY's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.